hoped for Christians in Rome. And this message is for us here too today. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. How can we be those who are filled with joy and peace and overflow in hope, even regardless of external circumstances? It's only possible through faith in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray that this will be a reality for us here and for all God's people across the world. Uh, We're going to stand and we're going to sing two songs. We have an anchor and I will bless the Lord. Please stand as the musicians lead us.
Father, what great truth that is that you really are our shield. You protect us against the fiery darts of the evil one, that you're our portion. You're, you're our inheritance, you're everything to us. Thank you that you are our defender and our, and our great high tower. We can take refuge in you, Lord. You're our protector. You're good and you're kind. Lord, through faith in Christ and life in you, we have nothing to fear. And we praise you for this great truth. Lord, help our hearts believe it, we pray. Thank you for your gift towards us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his life and death and sacrifice. And that through faith in him, through his death and resurrection, Lord, you give us eternal life. You cleanse us of our sins and you bring us into your very family. You give us your spirit who dwells within us, who causes us to be born again, Lord. And you promise us of an everlasting life with you in the new creation, free from sin and pain and suffering and war and death in your very presence, seeing you face to face. Lord, for this we worship you and we thank you. We do not deserve this, but you're so kind and so gracious and so abounding in love and faithfulness that you do this to wretched sinners like us. And for this, Lord, we praise you. And we ask that, Lord, you would warm our hearts this morning as we pray, as we sing, as we hear your word, and as we fellowship with one another. That this truth of who you are and who we are in you would become an ever-present reality in all of our lives, regardless of what goes on externally. And, Lord, we ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, let me uh, welcome you and say good morning. Uh, welcome to our service. For those of us gathered in the building and those uh, still tuning in on the live stream, uh, for those that don't know me, my name is Ashley and I've got the joy of serving here as one of the pastors uh, in training. And it's really good to have you children with us here again. Welcome. Uh, we'll be sending you out to your uh, Sunday school shortly. But we've just got a, a few more notices for the church family. And they all begin with a C, which is helpful. <clears throat> the Colgans. Uh, Robbie and Rachel Colgan uh, will be moving uh, to Croydon this week. This will be their final Sunday with us. We know that they've been a, a real blessing to their growth group uh, led by Robert Naismith. And so if you can um, uh, get to encourage them and bless them before they leave, uh, that would be great to do so. They'll be about here in the service. Um, coffee versus tea. Right, put your hand up if you're a coffee fan. Okay, good number. Put your hand up if you're a tea fan. Put your hand up if you're one of those strange folks that doesn't like warm drinks, hot drinks. Okay, you've outed yourself. Um, really exciting that we are going to start teas and coffees again. That's great, right? After the service so we can fellowship. We're going to start it again if we can get enough volunteers to serve on the refreshments desk. And so after the service out in the foyer... Um, Andrea Doggart, who's the deacon of that area, will be um, taking down your names. Please don't all rush at once, but I know you'll be desperate to do so. But please go out there and sign up so that we can get enough people on the rotors so that we can serve teas and coffees again and that we can speak the gospel and the goodness of Christ after the service to one another. Please do that. And the third C is children. Children up to P7, you're going to make your way down now to your Sunday school. And so whilst they do that, why not talk amongst yourselves for a minute? Well, please continue, please continue those conversations uh, after the service. Um, for those that might not know, today's a baptism Sunday, um, and baptism is a, it's a command 
of the Lord. Repent and be baptized. It's, it's not an option. It's not a choice in the Christian life. However, uh, sharing a testimony uh, is a choice. Uh, and we're going to do that now. Uh, David is going to come and share a little bit of his personal story of how he came to know and trust in Jesus. And later on, um, at the end of the service, once the live stream cuts off, we'll be sharing uh, another uh, testimony. So we'll have a, a number of baptisms today. But now, David. Hello. Good morning. Um, yes, so my name is David. I'm currently a PhD student in chemistry, and I have the privilege of declaring uh, my testimony to you of how um, I came to know the Lord Jesus as my saviour. Um, so I grew up being exposed to God and the Bible, though in my teenage years I started asking questions such as reconciling my faith uh, with my love for science and especially suffering. Uh, medically, I didn't have the best start to life. Around two, I was diagnosed with liver cancer, which was treated with chemotherapy and a liver transplant. However, a few years later, I developed a blood cancer known as non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, by God's grace, I was treated successfully with chemo, and now I'm 14 years in remission. Looking back, I can see how God used the suffering to help me cling all the more to him. You see, the God of the Bible isn't absent from this world's suffering. The suffering I went through was nothing compared to what Jesus willingly suffered. He was beaten, mocked, and put to death on the cross for me and for you. While considering these questions, I became more aware of how I've fallen short of God's perfect standard and deserve his just punishment for rebelling against him. I realized there was nothing I could do to make myself right before God. God opened my eyes to the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is the only one who can make me right before God. He lived the perfect life that I could never live and took the punishment I deserved. By placing my trust in Jesus' perfect life, death and resurrection, by God's grace, I now choose to obey him, knowing I'm forgiven of my rebellion and clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Simply put, God sees me as if I've nailed it. Today, I wish to make a public declaration of my faith in Christ by being baptized. And I'll leave you with this thought. When receiving a transplant, you genuinely never get to thank the person from whom you received the organ. Furthermore, the reason why I'm standing before you right now is because someone else had died. But with Jesus, he gave all of himself for me, even his own life, so I could have everlasting life. What is more, he's risen from the grave and now is in heaven. So I can give him all my thanks and praise. And if you don't know Christ, my prayer to you is this, that you may come to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Thanks, David. If you want to speak to him a bit more after the service, no doubt he'd love to speak to you. Uh, right now we're going to pray. Uh, prayer is an integral part of what we do here. Uh, and one of our elders, Colin Rogerson, is going to lead us in a time of pastoral prayer. Let's pray. Merciful Lord and Heavenly Father, we come to you now as your family. And as we do so, we, we are confident that you are fully aware of all our needs, which we have your promise that you will meet everyone. Over these past few weeks, we thank you. We've been able to learn what it looks like to be the family of God and the body of Christ on earth. That we do not live the Christian life in our own personal bubble, but we're members one of another, belonging to each other. Lord, help us to love and support one another with brotherly and sisterly affection and in practical ways as we serve you, our Lord, together. 
Father, we, we pray for those in our congregation who are in special need at this time, especially where there's illness and bodily weakness. We ask that you will remember our brothers, Morris Gunn-Russell, Alistair McCormack, Ian Balfour and Adrian Todd, and our sisters, Natasha Black, Sheila Howard, Sarah Forsyth, Evelyn Cormack, and Val Todd. Be with them all, each one, Lord, and may, may they know the, the preciousness of your presence with them as they go through difficult days. And remember also, Lord, those who are depressed, who may not show outward bodily signs of what's going on inside. Lord, may they be able to say with the psalmist, and as they do say, why are you cast down my soul? Why are you so discouraged within me? May they also be brought to conclude with the psalmist, trust in God, put your hope in him, for I will yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. Father, we, we pray today that you will be with all our ailing brothers and sisters, uh, but especially with our sister Celia Barron. We, we hold her up before you in a special way. We thank you, Lord, for the blessings that Celia has received from her Heavenly Father, even in these days since the resurgence of her illness, for the closeness of your presence with her and your comfort. And we give you thanks that her pain is now under control and that she is back home with Sam. Father, we, we pray that you will continue to hold her fast and also Sam for the duration of this illness and beyond. We know that you will. We also pray for Andy and Paddy that in the midst of Celia's illness, that they would see a savior who cares deeply for their mom and dad and also for them. Heavenly Lord, we, we rejoice today for the faith in Jesus, which is professed by our, our brothers Esan and David, and also by our sister Sipida, as they enter the waters of baptism, and each declare that Jesus Christ is the Lord of their life. Be with them, strengthen and guide them into lives of service towards you and your people, that they may abound in opportunities to declare the praises of him who called them out of darkness into his most marvelous light. Father, we also pray at this time that you will remember Esan's mom at this time in his home country as she suffers from terminal illness. And we pray that she would understand why he is taking this step today and that you would also draw her and the rest of the family to yourself in your great mercy. Indeed, may her illness not be terminal. May it be, may it be something that, that she would see a marvelous cure from, that she too may rejoice in the God of healing. Lord God, finally, as, as terrible events unfold before our eyes in the Ukraine, we, we implore you to intervene and protect the people of that country who have been caught up in the midst of war. Remember, Lord, your people in Kiev and the outlying areas. Help them to maintain a firm witness to your name and to show mercy and compassion to all who suffer because of this conflict, no matter whether they be Ukrainian or Russian. And so to fulfill the law of Christ, which is the law of love. And we pray, Lord, for the governing authorities of both countries and also our own government, that all would quickly realize that they are accountable to you, ultimately. You who put power into their hands. And we pray, Lord, for a swift resolution to this conflict. That peace, especially the peace of the gospel, the peace which passes all understanding and which guards our own hearts as believers in Christ. We pray that that peace would prevail in all these lands. And all we ask is in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, Colin. Just before our pastor Paul comes to uh, preach and continue our series in Romans, we're going to read from uh, that book, Romans uh, chapter 13. And David's going to come and read that for us. 
Hello, yes, so yes, to reading today from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. That's Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God had instituted. For those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing, Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Well, uh, let me add my welcome. My name is Paul Rees, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Shark Chapel. And uh, if you're just visiting us today, we've been working through the letter of Romans, and this is the passage that's come up uh, this Sunday. And if you want God to speak to you, why don't you just uh, join in this prayer with an amen at the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've heard your word to us as it was read. Now, please, by your spirit, would you illuminate our hearts? Uh, Would you help us to think your thoughts after you? Would you give us wise and discerning minds in Christ Jesus as we seek to apply these truths into our lives today? We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, the COVID crisis has brought to our attention in the most vivid of ways the question of the relationship between the church and the state. Uh, From the 8th of January um, 2021 until 24th of, of March, the Scottish Government's COVID lockdown regulations had the effect of imposing a kind of a blanket ban on um, places of public worship in Scotland. It was a ban on all uh, religious organizations. And um, for Christians, it meant it was illegal to go to church. Um, As Brent Hayward uh, has written, not since the killing time of 1680 to 1688 has there been such restrictions placed on the church in Scotland. Could the state just flick a switch and shut down the church? Now, Brent represented uh, 27 evangelical ministers uh, to seek a judicial review of the government's decision uh, instructing Janice Scott QC. Uh, And the issues that that were raised by the QC in summary form were this. Did the state realize that it had crossed the line between the secular and the spiritual? That it had gone against the doctrine of the Trois Kingdoms, and I'll come back to this Trois Kingdoms idea at the end, uh, embedded by statute into the Scottish Constitution since the Scottish Reformation, and that a blanket ban on worship was bringing it into struggle with the Article 9 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Well, the QC represented the government, argued no, but in his judgment of March 24th, Lord Braid found in favor of the petitioners. He ruled that the regulations had the effect of preventing worship, and to that extent, they did involve a spiritual matter. And so the government's blanket ban on gathering for worship in Scotland was declared unlawful by the courts. Now, as a church, we fully accepted our responsibility to play our part uh, in in the care of of, of public health and not to be a place that spread COVID infection. We've sought to behave responsibly uh, throughout this pandemic, but we do thank God that the blanket ban on worship in person, whether well-intended or otherwise, was held to be unlawful. I think this was a momentous decision. 
But the whole situation does raise the thorny question of how should the Christian church respond to the state when it interferes in the life of the church. And so this week we come to a key text in the New Testament uh, on, on this subject, Romans chapter 13. So please open your Bibles to it if you've shut your Bibles to Romans 13 or open your Bible apps. Um, and I want to acknowledge the help that I've received today from uh, Christopher Ash, whose headings I have adapted. And also I spent uh, some interesting time the last couple of weeks listening to 11 lectures by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this, uh, on these seven verses. I've got 30 minutes. So I'm going to basically work through the text and I'm going to make a few digressions. Now the particular focus of these verses relates to the Christian uh, response to the state more than the church response to the state, but I'm going to come back to that at the end. And the main command is plain to see, isn't it, in verse 1. Christians ought to submit to human authorities. Look at verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. Now Paul is addressing these Christians in the first century who are living in Rome. They were not living in a representing, uh, representative democracy. Uh, they were under the power of imperial Rome and the emperor at the time was Nero. Uh, a few uh, years before this, Emperor Claudius had exiled all the Jews uh, from Rome because of claims of disturbances that they were making. And according to the historian Suetonius, it was at the instigation of Crestus. And so historians have wondered whether that really was an, uh, an early uh, garbled reference to the impact of preaching about Jesus Christ. Well, it was the preaching about Jesus being the Christ the very reason that caused this commotion in Rome, leading to all the Jews being expelled? Well, it's an interesting conjecture, that's all we can say. But after the death of Claudius in AD 54, Jewish people, and some among them would have been Jewish believers in Jesus, were allowed to return to Rome. And so you can imagine some of the sensitivities as Paul wrote to these Christians in Rome, having witnessed all these fairly recent events to them. And Paul wants the church there to grasp the implications of have of their faith in Jesus Christ, how the grace of God just transforms all our relationships uh, with each other in church, uh, with our neighbors, with our community, and to the authorities. And if you want one word to summarize the fundamental Christian ethic of Christians to each other, it's the word love. And if you notice, this teaching about the Roman, uh, the, how we respond to authorities, is wedged between two big sections on love. So if you turn back to 12 verse Nine. This is the, this section before. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And then turn over to 13 verse 8, which we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. And so you see, this section on submitting to human authorities is actually an expression of Christian love. Submitting to authorities is an expression of Christian love. Now, we live in a country where there are all sort of different levels of governing authorities that bring order and structure into our society. Uh, we have the Westminster Parliament. We have the Scottish Parliament, which has devolved uh, areas of responsibilities. We have the Edinburgh City Council. We have the police. We have the Scottish courts. And then in each institution, there are levels of authority. So in schools, pupils uh, are under the authority of teachers, and they to the head teacher. And of course, in every uh, area of professional life, there are governing authorities. Uh, in business and in hospitals, you'll see this ordering of structure. And we as Christians are called to recognize and to voluntarily submit to the recognized authorities who govern over us in work and civic life. Submitting ourselves to others, as the Bible describes it, is not something that demeans us or reduces our dignity or value. A man is no more valuable if he's exercising loving leadership over his wife, nor less valuable if he's submitting to his church leaders or if he uh, submits to the policewoman who asks him to pull over in his car because she wants to check a few things with him. And so as Christians, we are all called to 
to submit, to be subject to governing authorities. It says, let everyone. But why? That's the question. Why should we do that? And the Apostle Paul gives us two main reasons in the text before giving some particular applications. That's what we're going to consider this morning. So let me give you reason number one. Christians uh, should submit to governing authorities because God governs the world by governments. And so rebelling against governments is rebelling against God, it says. Look at the second half of verse 1. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So all the way at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, and he is sovereign over everything he's created. He's the only one with ultimate authority. And yet when he created mankind, male and female, he created them. He gave them dignity of, of a devolved authority to rule over his creation. But it was a devolved authority to be exercised under the rule of God. And as soon as they started obeying God's command by filling the earth with little gardeners, little children, uh, who would also be stewards of creation, you see the beginning of a rich tapestry of authority structures as children are commanded to honor their father and mother. Shame we let the kids out too early there. Uh, and so we see that God has established a world where there are various structures of authority. Um, and of course, as we get to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that God declares through the resurrection that Jesus is Lord over all. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. So there's a rough a rubric about authority structures. Now, this is not just a teaching for Christians. This is not just teaching about democratic uh, representative form of government. It includes all forms of government, whether they're under a, a, a king, a sovereign, um, or an emperor. And there's Jesus standing before Pilate, uh, the governor and representative of the rule of the Roman Empire. And he reminds Pilate, you would have no power over me if it were not given you to you from above. And so Jesus modeled a submission under his authority, despite the injustice of the charges made against him. And we've got to be careful what we're saying here. So in saying that, uh, this statement, we're not claiming that everything a president or a prime minister or a first minister does is the will of God and is good. Pilate misused his authority in condemning Jesus, but the authority that he did have was a delegated one from God. That's what the Bible teaches. Every structure of authority that we have in the world, from the family to the state or even an empire, is, is a partial expression of how God governs the world. And consequently, we get a warning here. If I rebel against authority, I'm actually rebelling against God. And so unsurprisingly, I should expect punishment. Look at verse 2. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And so the first reason that Christians uh, ought to submit to human authorities is one of conscience. Knowing that to rebel against governing authorities is to rebel against God who's instituted these authorities. That's the first reason. Second reason, because God gives governments to stop society descending into evil anarchy. If you look at verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the ones in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, let me say, this is the ideal purpose for which God has ordained governing authorities. And it is simply to be a restraining influence on those who want to do wrong. The role of government, according to the Bible, in summary form from 1 Peter chapter 2, is to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Now, we saw last week that uh, while as individuals we should refrain from revenge and leave room for God's wrath on those who persecute us, 
Yet it is clear that the state does have a role to punish those who do wrong and uh, who are doing evil things. There is a clear role for rulers who bear the sword, it says. The role of government is to ensure justice and punishment for those who commit evil and do wrong while commending those who do right. That's a biblical understanding of what government is about. And look at the amazing description for those who exercise authority in governments. They're called God's, what? Servants. God's servants, isn't that striking? The word is deacon. We've got deacons in this church that help us run this church. And uh, God has ordained that there should be deacons who help run society. That's the, those who are in authority. Now Christianity has had just a massive influence on, 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 on the United Kingdom. And you'll see it in our language. Because the top job in the British government is held by the prime minister. And the minister word comes from the Latin, which means to serve. The, the top job is to be the top servant of the people. This is a fundamentally Christian idea, isn't it? And in fact, we've got um, uh, a government uh, where cabinet ministers lead ministries. That's what we call them, ministries. The ministry of defense, the ministry of foreign affairs. Their job is to serve the people in regard to these roles. And in Scotland, we even have the first minister of Scotland. So whether they acknowledge it or not, they are God's servants who are called to exercise authority for the good of the people that they govern. And so when people are acting in their God-given roles of authority within society, they do have the right to pass judgment and to ensure punishment. And I think the reference to the sword probably does mean that the state, according to the Bible, does have the right to execute people for crimes like murder. But with the risk of injustice and potential execution of innocent people, I understand why in Britain we abolished the death penalty, but still reserved the right to imprison people who've committed heinous crimes for the rest of their lives. Now, here's a question for you. What is worse, a bad teacher in a classroom or no teacher in a classroom? What do you reckon? Uh, the teenagers here might say, well, actually, for a few sessions, no teacher sounds great. But in truth, uh, a bit longer than that, and quite quickly, the average classroom will descend into something akin to William Golding's Lord of the Flies. What is worse, bad government or no government? Will you ever watch one of those um, post-apocalyptic movies where you've got the picture of total breakdown in society. What you know is pictured is not a utopian society, but a fearful anarchy of violence and insecurity. And we only have to go back in history to look what happened in the country of Iraq when Saddam Hussein was toppled from his government and all his government officials were removed. Absolute chaos ensued. And so to live in a country that is governed well is a great blessing, is it not? And we need to step back. At times we, we kind of get frustrated with some of the policies and decisions made by our governing authorities. But we need to step back sometimes and think, what a blessing to live in a well-governed, peaceful society. I know our friends from Venezuela, when they came over here, they found it delightful that they could travel on a bus and bandits wouldn't come and try and rob them, which is what would happen in Venezuela. And so the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy in his first letter that the, the vital importance of prayer, that we should that petitions and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is something that pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. A peaceful society and a well-governed society will actually help the spread of the gospel. People hearing the good news of salvation. And so we should pray for our governing authorities that they govern well, that we have such a peaceful society. And so the second reason we should be submitting to governing authorities is because God gives governments to stop society descending into evil anarchy. It has a restraining role to punish those who do wrong. But I already know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking about the objections. And I want to give a couple of what-ifs that we need to bring in at this point as a digression. What if the state demands 
that we disobey God? What if the state demands that we disobey God? What if those in authority who ought to submit to God as the supreme authority instead reject God's law and make demands on those that they govern that disobey God's commands? Well, it's clear from Scripture that as Christians, we submit to the authorities as an expression of their delegated authority to God. But actually, it's our submission to God that we're doing as we submit to the authorities. But actually, our ultimate thing is that we're submitting to God. Uh, We cannot disobey God because an authority is going haywire underneath it. As far as we are able, we are are to be those who respect and submit to human authorities. But there come times when fear of God is more important than fear of our authority. Civil disobedience becomes a Christian duty in that case. And there's plenty of examples of this in the Bible. When Pharaoh ordered the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn babes, they, they feared God and did not obey this evil command of the king of Egypt, it says in Exodus chapter 1. Or think when King Nebuchadnezzar built his golden statue and ordered that everyone should fall down and worship it, or face being thrown into a, into a fiery furnace, the trumpets blew, everyone went down except for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these Hebrew exiles. They stood and they refused the order of the king to worship this idol, for they could only worship God. King Darius uh, made a decree that for 30 days people should pray to nobody else, no other god or any other person apart from him. And what did Daniel do? Well, quite deliberately, he learned of the decree, he went home, he opened the windows in a very public way, and he prayed to God. And in the New Testament... Uh, The Jewish leaders of the people, the Sanhedrin, uh, they commanded the apostles not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You decide. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. It is clear that our primary responsibility is to obey God. Second, what if? What if the state becomes demonic? Revelation 13 is a fascinating um, alternative view of the state that we have in our Bibles. Uh, It's written 30 years after Romans 13. Uh, At that time, uh, there was systematic persecution of Christians under the emperor Domitian. And in Revelation 13, the state is no longer seen as a servant of God, wielding God's authority, but as an ally of the devil, pictured as a red dragon who gives his authority to the state, pictured as a beast coming out to the sea who spoke blasphemies against God and persecuted God's people. What should Christians do if they find themselves living under governing authorities who are totally rebelling against God's revealed will? What should a Christian do when the government is promoting evil and punishing those who do good? Well, that was the situation clearly in Germany under Nazi rule. And in such circumstances, out of fear of God and love for people, some Christians like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor, offered church resistance to Hitler's persecution of Jews. And he, amongst others, planned an attempt to overthrow Hitler himself. And so in extreme circumstances, Christians might well find themselves that they need to be in rebellion against evil authorities and seek to overthrow governments who are not leading for the good of the people. There are times when Christians have come to the judgment that this was the only way forward. But I would say those moments are extreme and rare. Thinking back to what we saw in in chapter 12, verse 17. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, it says. The normal situation is where the state meets its God's given obligations for its citizens, restraining evil and promoting good. So what is expected of the Christian citizen is summarized there in in chapter 13 and verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities 
not only because of possible punishment, which was the second reason, but also as a matter of conscience, the first reason. And so my third point is one of practical application this morning. And it's this, that submission to authority happens in all sorts of ways. So look at verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes. Oh, no. Oh, really? Is this the application? Yes, this is the application. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The blessings of living under good government uh, in a society uh, comes at the cost. It requires people to work full time to enable it to happen. And they deserve to be paid. And they require money to achieve uh, things for society's good. And then so a very practical way that we show our submission is through paying our taxes. Now the original word underneath servant here is actually different to the word deacon that's already been used twice in these verses. It's actually the same word used for priestly service in the temple. Quite amazing. As Christians, we should view uh, even tax agents, and we've got one on the sound desk at the back there, and a retired one over to my left here. We should view the tax agents as engaging in priestly service of God as they collect taxes to enable good government of our society. Well, there's a mind-blowing thought. As another tax year approaches and the need to fill out tax forms loom, this is a very revolutionary way. And I would suggest to you, as you fill out your tax forms this year, just remind yourself, you are loving God by loving the state in paying your taxes. The transformed life of a Christian who knows the grace of God and the mercy of God is to follow the principle of verse 7, of verse seven here. Give to everyone what you owe them. Be very careful about getting into debt, my friends. Avoid getting into debt as much as possible. And if you are, give to everyone what you owe them. This follows exactly what Jesus taught when he said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And uh, the words here, they, they cover direct taxation as well as indirect ta- taxation, the word revenue. And more generally, we show those in authority proper respect and honor as we deal with those who govern over us. And as we watch the horror of what is happening in Ukraine, and even as we pray for them, and pray for our Christian friends in Russia as well, we are reminded of the privilege of living in a democratic, peaceful country where we have regular opportunity to change the government without bloodshed by simply voting. And I would say to us that we should be positively engaging with those in authority. We should not be apathetic. Uh, We can vote intelligently. We can make use of writing to the press, the media. We can be in touch with our MSPs and our MPs and our councillors who come for election here in the city. Um, We can uh, seek to engage with them positively uh, and um, lobby for what is good in our society, for we're part of this society. I'm glad that we've got people in our congregation who've had the courage to stand for council elections and for Hollywood elections and I'm not sure we've had someone running for parliament yet, but that would be great for Westminster Parliament. And I think we need Christians in every political party. I don't think there's such a thing as a Christian party. I think we need people in every sort of political party with Christian convictions to work them out in those things. But we need to make sure that party politics does not infect our relationships to each other as a church body. Politics is interesting, it's important, but it's not that important. We're the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And Christians ought to submit to human authorities. Now quickly as I finish, how should churches relate to the state, the church relating to the state? 
And it would seem to me that the Scottish Reformation did a better job than the English Reformation with regard to this point. In England, they followed the Erastian model where the monarch was viewed as head of the established church so that the state was given authority over the affairs of the established church. I don't see anything in the Bible that would encourage an established church in that way, a, a, a church of the nation. In Scotland, uh, we what was developed at the beginning uh, was this, in the Reformation period, was this idea of the two kingdoms, the trois kingdoms, of the church and the state being uh, two separate entities with two different domains. Neither should seek to rule over the other, but to be in partnership together for the good of the nation. I think that's a pretty good model. There was a famous encounter between Andrew Melville, the Scottish reformer, I can invite the band up, and uh, King James VI in Falkland Palace in the 16th century. So um, Andrew Melville, the Scottish reformer, King James VI, and I'm not sure that Melville was fully following the command to give respect when he told the king that he was but God's silly vassal. There is twa kingdoms and twa kingdoms in Scotland. Two kings, two kingdoms in Scotland. As well as King James, there is Christ Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject James VI is and of whose kingdom he is not a king nor a lord nor a head, but a member. What a blessing it is to live in a well-governed nation. But the state is not our ultimate authority. It is Christ Jesus, our Lord, who is bringing in an everlasting kingdom that will never uh, go away. And our hope and our confidence rests in him. So let's stand and express that in the next hymn. We rest
So before David is baptized. I don't think that's me. Um, before David's baptized, uh, God's got this verse for him. We actually had it at the beginning of our service. It's this May the God of hope fill, fill you with all joy and peace as you trusted in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you.